Good morning, church. (laughs) Please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. We're going to be reading out of John chapter 8, verses 31 through 36 this morning. It says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will, be, you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is the word of the Lord. Man, thank you, Caitlin. Awesome job. Uh, good morning, guys. Welcome to the Springs. You may be seated. We are... Uh, doing this new practice of of reading the scripture first. And uh, one of our values here is the word. Uh, We value the word of God. We we treasure the word of God and we value the word because God speaks through the word and, and through the gospel, through the good news of Jesus, we can be renewed in the word. That there's actually this supernatural transaction that happens when we look at the word of God with our eyes, let it into our hearts, and live it out with our lives, that we begin to be transformed and renewed. And so when we do our scripture reading, the first thing, it's a beautiful moment where we allow the word of God to speak first. Uh, Before I come up behind the pulpit and say something, before anybody else comes up here and shares their thoughts on the word, we want the word of God to speak first uh, and and have its highest place of authority uh, in our lives. And so uh, that is something I'm really excited about. And and it's so awesome just to hear the word uh, from uh, people in our church. And so uh, we are in the book of John. We've been in the book of John for the past few weeks. And we've been looking uh, at the power and beauty of God's word through a series called Abide. And this series is super special because we're actually doing this series alongside our global family, called Every Nation, which is a family of churches and ministries. So all over the world, we've been going through this series, through these texts, through this idea of abiding, and it's been really special. And one of the goals of this series is really simple that we would grow in abiding with Jesus. And this is one of the greatest gifts that you and I have been given by God. It's this, eternal union with him. One of the greatest gifts, the greatest gifts that you and I have is that we are eternally connected with God in such a way that we can experience union with him. And this union cannot be separated by anything this world has to offer because the world did not create this union. And this union cannot be taken away when you place your faith in Jesus because Jesus has died to get his spirit inside of you. And this is what makes the good news of the gospel good news is that when you place your faith in Jesus, you become united with him. And so when the authors in the scriptures talk about abiding time and time again, uh, you need to understand uh, that they are talking about something that the people of God before them, their ancestors in the Old Testament longed for. They're describing an experience that men and women of God before them desperately longed for. Eternal union with God connection with God that isn't dictated by your best moments or your worst moments that isn't dependent on how obedient you can be to the law and how awesome your sacrifices are but it's dependent on faith in Jesus 
God's presence inside of you and living in light of that, communing with him, submitting to him, living in his word and building our life upon it because it is a firm foundation. But here's the problem, church. We are called to live in the word, but most of us, myself included, just settle for visiting it occasionally. We're called to build our lives upon the word, but most of us, myself included, just settle for driving by it. And this is the good news of the kingdom of God, that Jesus shows us that when we live in the word and we build our life upon the word, the word gives life. The word changes things. The word feeds our spirit as we discussed last week. And this morning, we are going to unpack this idea that the word sets us free. And so we've been in the book of John, and John has some pretty lengthy chapters. And I want you to look at the word with me. So if you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand. Our team is actually going to hand out Bibles. So if you want to shoot up your hand and get a Bible in your hand, I invite you to do that right now. And if you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you. So take this Bible with you, write your name in it, uh, and and we invite you to take that home and and look at that word and live in that word. So if you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand and we're going to hand those out. And I invite you to look at John chapter 8, verse 31 with me. We're going to work our way through some of these scriptures together. John chapter 8, verse 31 through 32. This is what it says. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So let's pause to cover a little bit of background uh, in this moment where we find Jesus is in a familiar moment. He's having this religious debate with the thought leaders of this day and age. And this was a pretty normal experience in the life of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was making these huge claims about himself that were very divisive and problematic. Uh, he was claiming to be God, not a God. The God, Uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Old Testament scriptures, the God that they grew up religiously devoting themselves to. Jesus is saying, that's me. And what they're looking at is a carpenter, a borderline homeless person, a crazy man that always speaks about himself in the first person. They're seeing someone who doesn't really match their expectations. And what's so amazing about this moment is that at this point in Jesus' ministry, he has publicly revealed himself to be God in the flesh. And one one group of people, they're like really excited about this. They're acting like they knew it the whole time. I I told you he was God, didn't I? You know, like I've I've been a a Cincinnati Bengals fan since the beginning. Uh, I knew Jesus was God. I've been telling you. And then another group is skeptical. They doubt. It doesn't make sense to them. And nonetheless, Jesus engages them. And this portion of scripture is known as a legal debate. In this conversation, a handful of subjects and themes are brought to the surface. But for the sake of time, I want to focus in on a few of them uh, that I put into two points that will help frame this text. The first one is lies and truth. And the second is freedom and enslavement. Lies and truth, 
Freedom and enslavement. Let's talk about lies and truth. Let's look at verse 31 and 32 again. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so when Jesus says that he offers a truth that will set them free, at the same time, he's saying that they're enslaved to something and need freedom. And this idea of this people being enslaved and need of freedom may sound ancient to you, may sound out of context, but it angered the Jewish audience that Jesus was speaking to. And this is what they said in verse 33. They said, we are offspring of Abraham. And we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? What? They've never been enslaved to anyone? The history books have confirmed this indeed is a lie. Their book actually tells the story of enslavement to Egypt and Babylon. And some have commented that, oh man, these individuals are just being super technical. Like I wasn't enslaved, that was my ancestors. And if that was me back then, it would have never happened. And yet they're forgetting that as they say these words, they're currently enslaved to Rome. And Rome is the oppressive force that is making them bow down to them and serve them. And what we see here is that this tragic lie reveals something heartbreaking about the nature of sin at work in humanity. That sin has the power to plant lies inside of the human heart that eventually grows into stories we actually believe about ourselves or the world that we live in. And these lies don't allow align with the truth and they affect the way we view ourselves. They affect the way we view the world and then how we interact in the world. This is lie-based thinking. John Mark Comer in his book, Live No Lie, says, The problem is less that we tell lies and more that we live them. We let false narratives about reality into our bodies and they wreak havoc in our souls. The problem is less that we tell lies and more that we live them. We don't have a problem telling lies. We've let these lies grow inside of our heart in such a way that it begins to shape and form the way we view the world and interact in the world. Lies like, I'm too busy. No one's ever said that. I'm too busy to go to church. I'm too busy to slow down to be with God. I'm too busy to participate in community. I'm too busy to check in on my family. And what this lie says is that God, who is the author of your story, loves you so much that he would put so much on your schedule, completely fill your schedule with just enough activities to make sure you don't have time to pursue the things that his word calls life-giving. These aren't just lies we tell ourselves. They're lies we live in. Lies that sound like this. If you truly knew my past, you'll never accept me. Or if you knew what I was currently struggling with and dealing with, you would surely reject me. And so instead of experiencing healing and freedom that is on the other side of vulnerability and confession, we keep it locked up inside of us because we believe that that is the safest option But in fact, it's the deadliest because it's not making life better. It's making it worse. Where does this come from? Why is this our story? The moments of deception that we give ourselves to all find their origin in what's often called the great deception. 
Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Let's look at verse 1. It says, The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good uh, for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So what's happening here? We have man, woman, talking snake. What is this? Well, the first humans, Adam and Eve, were created by God to live with God and live for God. Uh, they were created to enjoy eternal union with him. Uh, this sort of connection that wouldn't be separated by pain, loss, brokenness, or sin. It was, I am in God and God is in me, and we're experiencing this eternal union that cannot be severed by anything this world has to offer. And God placed a garden in the world, and he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. And, and one of the ideas that, that, that the Hebrews speculated about is that there was, uh, when we read Genesis chapter 1, there was, there was uh, chaos and there was disorder in the world and God began to speak order and chaos into the world. And so the garden was supposed to be this place where humanity would build culture and life alongside God and bring order to the world. Uh, create the world that we live in in such a way that glorifies God. Create a life, uh, a world that's filled with life and love. And the devil, often called the enemy, appears in the form of a serpent and does not like God's agenda of creating a flourishing life and love. And his agenda is the exact opposite. It's death. And that is what he wants Adam and Eve to experience. And this is where we see the first lie in history. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now you know this. Every good lie has a little bit of truth in it. And that's what makes it sound so appealing. And you know what? The enemy was right. Uh, they, will, uh, they, they were not going to die in the sense that they were immediately going to drop dead and cease to breathe. But they will eventually die. Uh, now instead of experiencing life, they're experiencing death. They have been separated from God. They have lost their connection with God. And now sin rules their life. And that is death. Because there's nothing life-giving about being disconnected from God and exiled from him. And this moment of great deception, if the deception wasn't bad enough, would lead to great dysfunction. 
Let's continue reading in Genesis 3, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 12, the man said, The woman you gave... To me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The great deception has caused all sorts of dysfunction. And you and I know this. We live in a world that's just wrapped up and, 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 and filled with all sorts of dysfunction. And I want to point out four specific dysfunctions in this passage that I believe are the root For all dysfunctions we see in the world, the first is a dysfunctional relationship with God. Look at verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? This was, never de- this was never the design for the relationship with God. It was never about hiding and retreating. It was always about abiding and remaining connected. And now, instead of placing themselves before the presence of God and enjoying communion with him that has clearly been broken, and instead of abiding, they find themselves hiding, running away from him. The second is a dysfunctional relationship internally within ourselves. Verse 10, and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Adam in this moment recognizes something about himself that he wasn't even aware previous to this moment. He notices that he's naked and he's conflicted. That the very way that God designed him to live and to be in the garden is now a source of tension in his heart because as he begins to examine himself, he senses that this is not right. I must cover myself. And that which God created and called beautiful, now it has become a source of conflict and shame in his heart. His body before the fall never caused any internal conflict. And now fear is in his emotional capacity, which it wasn't before. Now he is afraid of God. He looks at himself and he's far removed from the reality he was living in moments ago when he was naked and without shame. There's dysfunction internally. Third, dysfunctional relationships with each other or with one another. Verse 12, the man said, the woman you gave me, she she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. If you would have never given her to me, this would have never happened, God. And then the woman said, "Well, well, it was the serpent who deceived me and I ate. Adam is blaming Eve. Eve is blaming the serpent. Connection with each other has been lost. And now what fills that void? Strife. Disagreement. Arguments. Bitterness. Last and the one that's really talked about is a dysfunctional relationship with creation. When we go down to verse 22... It says, the Lord God said, behold, the man has became, become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard 
the way to the tree of life. When there was once this harmonious relationship with creation, you can walk the garden, enjoy the garden, do whatever you want in the garden except touch that tree. Now they've been removed from that. And at where there was order being brought to the world, now we see disorder in the world. And instead of creation partnering with humanity, we see creation at war in this planet. The world isn't working the way God intended. And the world that we live in is marked by death and destruction, brokenness. Instead of there being an unending source of resources and joy, now the world we live in only provides temporary resources and creates more longings for joy than fulfilling them. The great deception has caused all sorts of dysfunction. And we live in a world where we're drowning in deceptive ideas and they get inside of our heart. And the worst part is we allow them to disciple us. We allow these false thoughts about ourselves and about God influence us in such a way that they begin to form us and shape us and instruct us how to live. These lies aren't liberating. They're not life-giving. They distort reality. They keep us enslaved and create death. And Jesus, where we find him in this moment, is having this religious debate with the thought leaders of the day and age, and he sees how enslaved they are to their lives. And in a moment of love, he exposes the true nature of his lies. And so this is what Jesus says in in, in verse 44 when we look down in chapter 8. This is tough. You are of your father, the devil. Oh, Jesus, come on. They're not going to come back after that. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. And, and, And hear this, the lies that we choose to live in comes straight from the father of lies, the devil. And and the devil is, is, is a real enemy. The word also calls the enemy the accuser. Uh, His primary method of taking us down is by speaking lies and bringing accusations against us. Lies and accusations like, like God will never love you. I mean, look at your life. You keep struggling with the thing that you said you're going to stop doing and you keep doing it over and over again. Surely God has run out of patience for you. Lies like you'll never be good enough. Lies like nobody likes you. Lies like if you were less introverted, more people would talk to you. Or, or you're too introverted and that's why nobody wants to be around you. You'll never experience freedom. You'll always be this way. Things will never get better. The enemy speaks lies, and and the reason he speaks lies is because lies produce death. And the first lie in human history we see produced death. And the lies that he speaks to us are meant to create distance and separation internally with God and with one another so that we would find ourselves dying. And this is the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus comes to bring life and set us free from the mastery of sin in our lives. 
How? Let's look at verse 31 and 32 again. Jesus said to his disciples who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Do you see it? This truth will set us free. The lies of the enemy that brought bondage and death. Jesus comes to reverse the curse of sin and in its place bring truth that is life-giving and liberating. Uh, E.W. Clink says that the force of the word truth in John's gospel is better conveyed by the word reality. Truth is the reality seen when all the illusions and delusions of sin are dispelled by the word of God. Truth is the reality seen when all the illusions and delusions of sin are dispelled by the word of God. This is powerful because Jesus doesn't just come to save us from our sin. He shows us how to truly live. And and, and when the Bible talks about freedom, it's talking about salvation. Those two words are connected to one another. So, So the idea of freedom in the Bible is never that you're free for something. That's often how we think about freedom in our day and age. Like, I have finally graduated from high school, and I have come to Texas State University, and I'm free to do whatever I want. The Bible doesn't call that freedom. The Bible actually calls that enslavement. Because being subject to your own sinful desires doesn't actually create a better life. It enslaves you. I am free now that I'm no longer under that boss. I am free now that I'm no longer at this job. And we think to ourselves that our quality of life is attached to how liberating our current circumstances can be. The Bible never talks about freedom for something. It always talks about freedom for someone. Free from the power of the enemy, free from living for the enemy, for the accuser, for the agenda of sin, and now free to be ruled by a loving God who wants to bring life and end death. Here is the good news of the kingdom of God. God the Father has sent his son into the world to set us free from sin and from the lies of the enemy. God the Father has sent his son into the world to set us free from sin and from the lies of the enemy. And here's what's so amazing. The father did not send a politician. The father did not send a superhero. The father did not send a war hero ready to go into battle to liberate us from the oppressive forces around us. The father did not send a motivational life coach. The father did not send a social media influencer. The father sent a teacher. Rabbi Jesus. Why? Because we need to be taught how to truly live. And we need to be taught the truth and how to live it out because apart from Jesus teaching us and shaping us and forming us, our hearts are like Plato that give themselves over to what the screen is telling us how to live or what the world is telling us how to live. And instead of being formed and shaped by the word and person of God, we give our hearts over to be shaped by this world. And none of it is truly liberating. Not just any teacher. A teacher who's the embodiment of truth. A teacher who is truth in the flesh. A teacher who brings a truth that expels 
all lies. A, a teacher who offers a truth that restores. A teacher that gives a, a truth that, that breeds life, that sets us free to live. This is why Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus is a rabbi. He is a teacher. And what is a disciple? A, a disciple is a learner. A disciple is a student and follower of Jesus. This was sort of the normal relationship. You would have the rabbis and they, they would have their group of students, their apprentices, their, their followers, their students, and they would pour everything they have into their students so that they could live like them and be like them. And Jesus is saying, if you are truly my disciple, If you truly submit yourself to my teaching, you will abide in my word. And what do we do when we receive this word? We put it into practice. This is the nature of abiding. This is the rhythm of abiding. Receiving the word and doing it. Receiving the word and doing it. And what we see happen when we receive the word of God and we put it into practice in our lives is that we begin to experience a freedom and a life-giving relationship with God that nothing in this world has to offer. I was having coffee with a friend the other day, and we were talking about uh, how we're following Jesus, and I shared with him, I, when I do the stuff that Jesus tells me to do, I, I, feel, I feel good <laughs> throughout the day. Like when, I'm, when I try to just like uh, live in this word and, 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 and read it and, and practice prayer, and if God calls me, uh, you know, through his word to practice patience and be slow to anger, my attempts at doing those things, though they may not be perfect, actually produce some sort of life in me that I can't explain how it happens. And, and that's the mystery of this word, is that when you do it, and trust me, you're going to do it imperfectly. That's why Jesus says, practice, practice, practice that it does something inside of your heart, your soul, your mind, that renews you, informs you, and and brings the sort of joy that comes from obedience. The message of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus are life-giving and liberating. Do you believe this, church? Another way of saying this is, if you hold my teaching and if you remain in my word, you are truly my disciples. Think about this, that the place of freedom is, is found in remaining in the person of freedom, being so attached, so close, communing with him. And, and what's so great is that this person can be known in a personal way. And, 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 and let me tell you something about this person, Jesus. He's way more interested in your freedom and well-being than you could ever imagine. He is more interested in seeing you thrive and experience life and and, and experience joy and happiness than you could ever imagine. And the things that you believe are restrictive, let me tell you, that's a lie from the enemy trying to hold you back from experiencing the very thing God wants to give you that would bring life and breakthrough to your life. There is freedom in following Jesus. There is freedom in pursuing joyful obedience to him. This person, Jesus, is more interested in your freedom and well-being than you could ever imagine. How do I know this? Because the teacher is also a savior. And this savior allowed the lies of the people to be the pathway 
to his cross. That guy right there, he's saying that he's God. Crucify him. Judas believed the lie that money would satisfy his soul more than the person of God in front of him could take him away. And these lies of corruption and deception escorted Jesus to the cross. And the one who never sinned, the one who never lied, experienced death as a sinner and liar so that he may get his life and his truth to all of us who have been plagued by death and deception. The perfect one died as though he was imperfect. The spotless lamb took our blemishes so that he could get his life and his truth inside of you. And here's what's so amazing. Is that Jesus died to free us from deception. Jesus died to restore all that this dysfunction has caused in our lives. Jesus died that we may function and live as he intended for us in the beginning. Abiding with him. Experiencing inseparable union. You believe this, church. Let's close in prayer.